Well, today I wanted to talk about exchanges and clearinghouses, primarily stock exchanges. Uh, so w these are places where shares in corporations are traded. And I think uh, it's good to devote a whole session to them because uh, exchange is central to economics. In fact, I was struck recently, I was rereading the uh, presidential address of uh, my old teacher when I was an undergraduate at University of Michigan. I took a course by Professor Kenneth Boulding. Uh, and then I suppose I'm influenced by him. But he gave a, uh, when he was elected president of the American Economic Association, he gave a talk about economics. And he had an interesting definition of economics. What is economics? There's a lot of definitions given for the field, but one definition is the theory of the allocation of scarce resources, right? Well, that's by some definition the defi uh, what e the essence of economics is. But Boulding said that doesn't sound right to him because uh, political science is about the <laughs> allocation of scarce resources, and, and so is uh, uh, the, even the family is an instrument of scarce resources. So Boulding said in uh, it was his 1969 presidential address that economics is the study of exchange. All right. Obviously, it's all it's prices and quantities that economics emphasizes, and those are parameters of an exchange. So uh, we'll say that equals economics. I'm reminded of another book. I'm talking in very general terms first, and then I'm going to focus in on stock exchanges. But I'm reminded of another really important book which I read so many years ago uh, by Carl Polanyi called The Great Transformation. Uh, and that was written in 1944. Uh, what is the great transformation? Well, for Polanyi, it's the invention of exchange. He said, what is the most important uh, invention of man? Uh, maybe it's, it's, it's exchange. According to his history of uh, humankind, this was a, a, a uh, relatively recent invention, Neolithic or more recent than that. He argues that in primitive societies, there is really no uh, arm's length exchange. An arm's length exchange is one where you, you just quote a price and a quantity and you don't have any other business. You know, the price and the quantity sum it up. It's a business transaction. But Polanyi argued that uh, until just something on the order of 10,000 years ago, there were no business transactions. There were only uh, gift exchange. There were relationships people had, and you would solidify a relationship by making a gift to someone else, 
and then that person would later reciprocate. But there's no price, there's no exchange. So he claims that the development of our civilization is really the result of the development of the idea of exchange and then an amplification of the idea as it became more and more pervasive. By the way, I've since learned, I thought Polanyi was very impressive, but some anthropologists question whether there wasn't exchange more than 10,000 years ago. And they, they cite evidence. One, one kind of evidence that's found of this is that uh, certain commodities, uh, even in the Paleolithic times, certain commodities are found far from where they were mined, like uh, flint to make stone tools or ochre to make uh, body paint. And they, they, they figured out where, you can do a chemical analysis and you can figure out where it was mined. And then if you find that it was so arrived somewhere a thousand miles away, <laughs> there must have been exchange, right? Uh, the, the cavemen, no? Okay, it could have been that they just killed someone, right? Uh, so I guess nobody knows. But uh, uh, anyway, some anthropologists argue that uh, there there was exchange. There was there, maybe it was too pervasive. Of course, people did kill a lot of people in those days too. Uh, anthropologists report so maybe Polanyi had it exactly right. But I think he had it at least approximately right that exchange has become a bigger and bigger part of our lives, uh, and that's modern civilization. So, uh, I'm going to talk uh, mostly about uh, financial exchange. That's the subject of this course. And, but I, I can be a little bit more general. I wanted to start by distinguishing a broker and a dealer. What's the difference? Uh, it's a fundamental thing. A broker, uh, actually, I've got this almost as a slogan. A broker acts on behalf of others as an agent to earn a commission. So it's for others, trades for others as an agent for a commission. The commission is a fee. Um, what is a dealer? A dealer trades for himself or herself, uh, acting as a principal, not an agent, um, and profits from a markup. Okay, so uh, I can give you an example of each. When you buy or sell a house, do you get a real estate broker or a real estate dealer? <laughs> okay, that's almost obvious, right? Because you, uh, you think you've heard the term real estate broker so many times. When you buy or sell a house, you commission a broker and you agree on a contract that pays the real estate broker a certain sum of money, maybe 6% of the value of the house, uh, if a uh, buyer is found. And then the broker doesn't buy your house, right? <laughs> uh, so the broker is an agent. And the 6% uh, 
is the commission that the broker gets if he or she is successful in finding the other side uh, of, the, of the deal. Uh, what's an example of a dealer? An antique dealer. Right? Suppose you're buying uh, a chest of drawers for your apartment. You go to an antique store, and there's someone there, your antique dealer, uh, who, uh, who has furniture that he now owns, having bought it, and then sells you the, um, and, and makes a profit by selling to you at a higher price, namely with a markup. He marks up the price that he paid for the uh, item. So uh, let me just ask you, uh, what a, why, why is it that way? Why are antiques sold by dealers and real estate by brokers? Well, uh, we just, I recently had a discussion with uh, Guillermo Ordenez, who's an assistant professor here, and we were wondering, maybe there are real estate dealers. Uh, <laughs> uh, Oliver helped us and found actually in Germany a couple of real estate uh, dealers. But only like a couple, <laughs> and we couldn't find any in the U.S. Uh, and we searched around in many other countries, and there's just virtually none, no real estate dealers. Anyone have any idea why? <laughs> I'm asking you to think. It's a little. <laughs> or does anyone come from a country where they have real estate dealers, and that would end it if you? I bet not, right? Well, what about antique <coughs> brokers? <laughs> okay. Why not that? Have you ever heard of an antique broker? Uh, maybe there are, you know? But uh, it's an interesting question. It seems like some markets are naturally dealer markets and some are broker markets. Uh, we thought of one explanation why there aren't real estate dealers, at least in the United States. We learned that a dealer uh, has to pay income tax on the profits from a deal. And that is at a higher rate than the capital gains tax. And so that closes people out. You wouldn't want to be a real estate dealer because you, you pay a, end up paying a, uh, a higher tax. The other thing is, I wonder if there's something about uh, information um, that someone who deals in real estate, it, it's just too hard to know what to pay for a house. Nobody, you know, it's, it's so subjective. You can make big mistakes if you're going to buy houses and then resell them at a markup because the market is just so variable and, you know, it ultimately changes quickly. Maybe, you know, it's too risky. I don't know. I'm trying to think. But of course, there are real estate dealers, just very rare. So, uh, so we're going to talk about stock markets. And which do you think stock markets are? Are they, are they dealer markets or broker markets? <laughs> well, the answer is both, uh, and now it's not as uh, clear, and I'll come back to this. Um, the New York Stock Exchange New York Stock Exchange in New York is a broker market, or they would say an auction market continuous double auction market where a broker facilitates the uh, trades. The NASDAQ market 
is a dealer market. So uh, uh, you pay commissions to your broker at the New York Stock Exchange. You pay a markup to your dealer at Nasdaq. Uh, so uh, I'm just trying to think. The I, I thought uh, I will start by talking about stock exchanges and uh, historically. And uh, I have a lot to say. <laughs> I can't cover it all. I was going to start with uh, ancient Rome. I think I mentioned that before, but um, the uh, I'm getting there in my notes. The uh, ancient Roman stock exchange is the first stock exchange that I think anyone knows about. But uh, traders, I, I'm re relying on the research of Ulrika um, Malmandier, uh, who has uh, studied the ancient Roman stock exchanges, much as can be studied. Uh, there's not that much evidence about it, but they, uh, the traders met outdoors on the Roman Forum at the Temple of Castor. Uh, that's where you went to buy and sell shares. Uh, the shares in Latin were called partes. I think I don't know if I covered this or not. And the companies were called publicani. Uh, and uh, the, the peculiar nature of the ancient Roman corporations is that they sold their customers were the government, and so they did services for the government, like um, provide horses for the army. Or they would feed the geese on the Roman Forum, on the Roman Capitol. They always fed the geese there because the geese were hallow in ancient Rome because they uh, they once warned of an invasion by cackling. <laughs> so there was a publicanus uh, that was uh, in charge of feeding the geese. Uh, but that seemed to the, the uh, and also uh, they would talk about share prices. It's known that they, they would go up and down even then. But there's no data on their share prices, so it seems that there was a long gap uh, for stock exchanges after the fall of the Roman Empire, and the, um, the publicani disappeared. And there were various, uh, uh, a wide variety of financial arrangements, some of them resembling corporations. But the advent of the rebirth of the stock exchange. Uh, it really didn't occur until 1602 in Amsterdam, when the I mentioned this before, when the uh, Dutch East India Company started trading, uh, and then uh, uh, Jonathan's Coffee House. <laughs> I like that story. In London. Uh, lots of people would get together and talk there, and coffee houses were uh, uh, became a big thing in late 1600s. And somebody started posting stock prices on the wall <laughs> at Jonathan's Coffee House by uh, what was the date? 1698. And so the London Stock Exchange grew out of Jonathan's Coffee House, and then. <laughs> 
moving forward in time, now we're going to get lots of countries, but I'll mention the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, the uh, traders of shares in the United States uh, met outside, outside uh, and in 1792, under a buttonwood tree. I'll put buttonwood, that's a curious name. I think that's just a, a common uh, tree that we still have around. Uh, and they signed the agreement to form the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, but uh, then, uh, what else? Next in my little history. India, by the 1850s, there were in um, Mumbai, or then called Bombay, uh, there were traders under a famous banyan tree. <laughs> the same thing, they're all outdoors uh, in uh, Bombay. Bany these banyan trees are more impressive than buttonwood trees. Uh, but by, it was by uh, 18, uh, uh, 1875, the Bombay Stock Exchange was founded. So that's the BSC. So that's been around for over a hundred years. But things have happened more recently. And one thing that's been shaking things up, these are very venerable old institutions. What's been shaking things up is the advent of electronic trading. Uh, and uh, these were kind of old-fashioned, venerable institutions. Do you know what happens at the New York Stock Exchange? What happened then and still happens today? There's a floor called the trading floor, and the various brokers meet there, just like in Jonathan's Coffee House. They actually physically come to the floor and they stand around. And uh, there, are, there are posts for each stock. And if today you think you have a customer who wants to buy uh, IBM stock, then you go over to the IBM crowd, and there's a crowd of brokers there who are trading. And you just do it, <laughs> you verbally. You talk to them, and you make a trade. Uh, that's really old-fashioned. There is something more electronic and modern about the New York Stock Exchange, but that specialist post behavior still persists. Most of the world is switching over to electronic trading, and so things happen that. Um, so, for example, in India, <coughs> they developed another stock exchange called the National Stock Exchange, uh, and that was um, in 1992. And the National Stock Exchange was all electronic, uh, and so it was the modern version. It's rapidly gaining on the uh, Bombay Stock Exchange. Uh, so, uh, let me go a little bit more forward. Uh, China, because of the communist government, did not have a stock exchange until 1990. And there were two found stock exchanges founded in China in 1990, Shanghai and Shenzhen. And at least the Shanghai Stock Exchange is owned by the Chinese government. And that's why Laura Cha, when she talked to us about that, she, she was on the China Securities Regulatory Commission, which actually owned the Shanghai Stock Exchange. So, uh, th that's the. Um, oh, Latin America. 
I'm just going to Sao Paulo, Stock Exchange, 1890. Uh, Mexico has only one stock exchange, but it was founded in 1894. So we seem to have like two different kinds of exchange. We have the old exchanges, that are at least 100 years old, and we have the new electronic exchanges. Uh, things have really sped up with the advent of electronic exchanges. So uh, I mentioned the New York Stock Exchange, which started on the street uh, outdoors and is an old-fashioned exchange that uh, has been slow to update. But more recently, we have, I mentioned it already, NASDAQ. The, that's the, uh, it stands for originally National Association of Securities Dealers Automatic Quotation System, uh, which was created in the 1970s. Uh, the interesting story about NASDAQ, uh, in, in the 70s, the New York Stock Exchange was highly prestigious. It was the, the big board, the, the, the place. Uh, and a, a critical element of a stock exchange is that in order to get your stocks traded on the exchange, you have to satisfy listing requirements. So the New York Stock Exchange would examine any corporation that wanted to be listed on the exchange, and it was the prestigious big exchange, so it had high standards. So the company had to have a history of earnings, it had to have uh, a, a, a the right kind of management structure and board. A lot of things were checked out by the exchange. And uh, as a result, the way it would work in, in the 1970s, a startup company could never get traded on the New York Stock Exchange. It would be traded instead by brokers off exchange or over the counter. So OTC uh, means over the counter, that means not on an exchange. Uh, so, in the 1970s and earlier, the uh, over-the-counter brokers uh, would deal with each other informally with telephone calls, or actually out on the street. <laughs> uh, they'd meet each other out on the sidewalk originally, and then they got telephones. Um, and they, they had some record which they called pink sheets, because uh, they were traditionally printed on pink paper. These were lists of dealers buy and sell uh, quotes on prices of over-the-counter stocks. The National Association of Securities Dealers then was an organization of these over-the-counter traders. And in the early 70s, they set up the first computerized system. Uh, they decided that everyone's telephoning everybody. Let's create a, a system that um, uh, that really works and that gets us, uh, gets us the information. Uh, and so that was the uh, NASDAQ system, uh, the first computer-based system, which has now increasingly taken over much of the world. I shouldn't imply that New York Stock Exchange was entirely a laggard on this. Um, Electronics played a role in stocks going back very early. The uh, New York Stock Exchange used telegraph in the 19th century to convey prices. 
and they invented ticker tape machines. A ticker tape machine is an electronic printer that would print out stock prices. Uh, and in fact, Thomas Edison, the inventor, his first invention was actually a ticker tape machine. Uh, that was in, the, I think, the 1870s that printed stock prices. But all it was was a record of what had traded recently. It wasn't a system that, uh, that helped you trade. It just reported what had happened. It was historical. So I wanted to show you what NASDAQ created uh, in the 70s. And uh, it's, it's a order book that would be visible to everyone who trades on it. Uh, so uh, prior to discussing that, I want to tell you about different kinds of orders. Uh, if you buy and sell stock and you call up a broker and you say, I want to buy and sell, the simplest kind of order is a market order. And you would specify the quantity. You would say, I want to buy, a, and, the, and the name of the company, of course, I want to buy 100 shares of General Motors, or I want to sell 100 shares. But you don't name a price. You, you'll find out whatever the price was. The broker will get you the best price. Uh, will try, if, he's, if he or she is a good broker, will try to get you the best price. But uh, it'll still be uh, unknown to you because you didn't specify it. You might be unhappy with the price. The price might be too high, okay? And then the broker will say to you, well, you know, if you're unhappy, you should have told me. Uh, you could have told me not to pay more than a certain amount for a buy or not to take less than a certain amount for a sell. So th the alternative is a limit order. And so with a limit order, you give both quantity and price. So uh, if it's a buy, I want to buy so many shares, but I don't want to pay more than such and such a price. Then the, uh, the broker will keep that on his, uh, on his or her books until, uh, well, whatever the agreement between you and the broker is. It might expire after the day is over, or you could ask to have it kept on the book. And when the price becomes available, that's under, uh, that, which is no higher than your, than your specified price, then the order will be executed. Otherwise, it won't be executed. And then if for a sell order, it would be the same thing. You, know, the, the, if you specify both a quantity and a price, and the order will be filled, or partly filled. You might not be able to get all of your quantity, but they'll fill as much as they can of it at a price, at that price or lower. Uh, and there's another kind of order called a stop order. Uh, <coughs> with a stop order, you also specify quantity and price. <coughs> but it's different. With a limit order, uh, you, you, would, you, would, if you would buy, it, say it's a buy limit order. Well, let's talk about sell. If it's a, if it's a sell limit order, you would sell the quantity at such and such a price or higher. With a stop order, you would sell that quantity at such and such a price or lower. <laughs> to make that clear. 
A stop order, also called a stop loss order, is an order that you can place with the broker to indicate that I'm worried that this stock might really collapse and I don't want, I'm holding it, you know, but I want you to sell it if the price starts falling a lot. So, uh, so suppose the price is 100 today, I could put a stop loss order at 80. And then at least I know I can't lose more than 20% of my investment because the broker will immediately sell it when the price of that stock falls below 80. There's also a buy stop order, and that would be something that someone would rationally do if that person had shorted a stock. So if you had shorted a stock and you were worried that the price would go up and ruin you, you can leave with your broker a buy stop order to sell it, I mean to buy the stock whenever the price exceeds a certain amount. And you would do that to prevent yourself from having unlimited losses on your short position. So those are the, there's other kinds of orders, but those are the main kinds of orders. So uh, now I wanted to talk particularly about limit orders. That's the most important kind. Uh, a lot of uh, advisors say never place a market order. Why should you ever do a market order? There's always some you know, price that you'd be unhappy with. You might as well say that. Uh, and so some exchanges don't even allow market orders. They, uh, uh, so let's talk about limit orders. And what I wanted to show you uh, was what a uh, NASDAQ level two customer sees. Uh, NASDAQ is an organization, now it's, it's a firm traded on its own stock exchange, or it's called NASDAQ OMX. But if you want to subscribe to NASDAQ, it's very expensive, I understand. So you can subscribe at level one uh, or level two, which is more expensive. And I'm I was going to show you an example of what you would see on your computer screen if you subscribe to NASDAQ level two for a particular stock. And so uh, this is a hypothetical limit order book for uh, Microsoft. Uh, what it shows, uh, 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 this, would be, this is not live, but it would be live on your screen. And you, these numbers would be changing before your eyes, flashing back and forth before your eyes. Uh, and so I've just frozen it at a moment of time. So what do we have? We have six columns here. This, is, this first column is the shares uh, that people want to buy. So the first three columns correspond to those. So the, the up, uh, bid is the price they're bidding to buy these shares. Okay. Remember, NASDAQ is a dealer market. So these are dealers are making these bids, or people are making them through a dealer. And uh, MPID is the marketplace ID where these bids and uh, uh, offers are being made. So uh, the first one shown, someone is offering to buy a hundred dollars, a hundred shares of Microsoft at a price of twenty-five dollars and twenty-three cents, and that is listed on ArcaX. Uh, ArcaX. There's an interesting, so I didn't mention that exchange. It's now part of the New York Stock Exchange. Um, maybe I'll come back to that in a minute, but let me just ex continue to explain this, um, this uh, slide. 
Now, you note that the bid prices are arranged in declining order, right? They go down as you move down. The computer has sorted all the orders. These, these are all the unfilled orders. Someone called their broker and said, I want to buy 100 shares, and the broker uh, entered the uh, bid through ARCAX, ARCAX, uh, and it's now on the NASDAQ screen. Uh, someone else had a much bigger buy order, wants to buy 9,430 shares, uh, and this came in directly to NASDAQ, and, but it's a penny less, $25.22. And so you can just see what's going down. Now, the other side of this, is that clear what we're seeing here? The other side of the screen is the buy orders, and it's exactly the same, except that here the, the numbers go up as you move down the screen, because the, the, the computer has sorted them in the reverse order. So that represents what various people are willing to buy. Uh, so somebody is willing to buy 2,400 shares. At twenty-five dollars and twenty-four cents. Okay, and uh, somebody. Uh, well, actually, there's two different customers. I th this one placed the order first, so I think it, that's the priority. It's by the one who placed it first. Somebody else at the Cincinnati Exchange. I guess that's what that means. Or offered to buy eighty-two hundred shares at the very same price, uh, but it's listed as a separate order, and so on. So now you're sitting here looking at the screen now. And you notice that this ask price here is higher than the bid price there. So what does that mean to you? Um, it, uh, it means there's no trade, right? <laughs> because somebody wants, someone is offering to sell at $25.24, and somebody's offering to buy at $25.23. It's no trade. Until somebody changes their price, now, that's no surprise because these orders would be filled very quickly if there's a crossing. See, these two lines don't cross, so it's it's like if you plotted these curves. There's supply and demand curves, right? We could plot the amount uh, at various prices. Uh, well, I, you could see I'd have curves that that a supply and demand curve that don't cross. Normally, we have a, they have to cross somewhere, and then there's a market clearing price. These, these things normally don't cross, because if they did cross, it would immediately disappear from the screen. Someone would finish the order and they'd sell. But you sitting at the screen uh, uh, now have a pretty good idea what the price is. Uh, a NASDAQ level two is better than NASDAQ level one, because level one just gives you the first row. All right, it's cheaper to subscribe to that. What NASDAQ level one gives you is the inside spread. It would tell you that there is 100 shares trade, uh, bid at $25.23 and asked at $25.24. And if you want to hit that order, you could take either side of that. But it doesn't tell you the whole picture. Uh, if you know NASDAQ level two, you know a lot more about the market. And if you're going to play the game of trading, you want to know this. So, for example, you know that it might be hard for a price to fall rapidly before below $25.22 because there's a big buyer down there. And so it's going to be hard for the price <laughs> to fall below that. 
so if you saw the screen in real life, these numbers would be just blinking, changing rapidly before you. And uh, uh, trades that were there 20 seconds ago would be gone uh, in, a, in a flash. So you've got to move fast to execute these trades. Uh, on a fully automated system, the uh, trades would be executed automatically. And this is becoming, electronic trading is taking over the world. And the, uh, the orders can be executed by computers that make it instant so that you don't even, the number doesn't even appear on the screen long enough for you to see it. Um, so one development that's coming in now is what's called high frequency trading. Uh, HFT, which is uh, trading that is done by computers. Once you have a system like this, it's when, you, when you have to trade through a floor broker on the New York Stock Exchange, it, it has to proceed at human pace, right? The way it works is you make a telephone call to your broker. Your broker makes another telephone call to the representative on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. That person walks over to the crowd <laughs> and then discusses and you know, indicates the, what, it's like a poker game. You know, you, you, you don't want to reveal your hand, but you kind of feel people out and then after a little discussion, you reach a, 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 a trade. Uh, but when you have something that you can hit on a computer, it just goes instantly. So people start programming trading, and that, that, that's been an important phenomenon because uh, you, know, you see these things moving faster than you can, these prices disappear and reappear so fast that um, you can't quite uh, know, you can't act fast enough. So, we have algorithmic trading uh, or um, program trading. And so that uh, goes back to uh, practically to the 1970s. Certainly by the uh, 80s, program trading was becoming a big and important um, phenomenon. And it's becoming increasingly important now. Uh, high frequency trading now. Uh, brokers will in, in invoke what, what are called millisecond strategies. You can actually flash uh, an order on some of the exchanges that lasts a thousandth of a second. You can put a buy order <laughs> or a sell order and retract it in, in a millisecond. And that means you're, it, this would be a trading strategy which you might employ. You could do that to discourage people from trading. If you want to trade only with the computers, <laughs> if you think, I want to, uh, people are too smart for me. I don't want to trade with people. I want to rip off the computers. Then you write a millisecond trading strategy, and then you, 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 can, you can sort into who, who, um, who trades with you. Uh, uh, now, now, the interesting thing about millisecond trading is that it's favoring the electronic exchanges. More and more, as time goes on, people are getting more and more sophisticated about about uh, high-frequency trading. And so they want to trade on exchanges that are fully electronic so that they can play all of these games. And that means that the floor exchanges are dying out over most of the world. Um, by the way, the uh, New York Stock Exchange, uh, I was going to give you a history of it. Uh, the New York Stock Exchange has been slow to adapt to these 
technologies. Let me just give you a little history of electronic trading. Uh, is an exciting thing for uh, many people, uh, but I think it started. Or the the really um, interesting electronic trading started with the ECNs, electronic com communication networks, that were allowed by the Securities and Exchange Commission as alternatives to stock exchanges. Stock exchanges are highly regulated by governments around the world. But in the 1990s, uh, the Securities and Exchange Commission allowed more uh, sophisticated electronic trading, at least as an experiment. So they didn't call these uh, things exchanges, they called them ECNs. And one of the most important ECNs was a company called Archipelago. Another one was called Island. These were actually just websites where you could trade, and they were open to the public. They, were, they, they had a different culture. They had more of a web culture. The web culture is, we're not going to charge you to see the order book. We'll just put it out to everybody. Right? The web doesn't charge you for a lot of things. Uh, and so they became popular trading sites for the general public. They grew up the way the personal computer grew. So New York Stock Exchange, when they first saw Archipelago, they said, oh, this is a bunch of college kids fooling around, some computer game, sort of. Uh, and they didn't take it seriously. But eventually, the New York Stock Exchange had to take it seriously because Archipelago was growing so fast. So eventually, New York Stock Exchange merged with Archipelago. Uh, and so, uh, uh, they're now, uh, I think most of their trades go through ARCA-X. I'm not sure if that's right, but a large fraction of their trades go through ARCA-X. Uh, and uh, so, uh, the, um, so yeah, New York Stock Exchange brought Ar bought Archipelago in 2005. Uh, and uh, at that time, uh, Arca, Arca X was breathing close on uh, New York Stock Exchange for trading volume. Uh, things are happening fast in the stock exchange because the technology is changing. Whereas we had the New York Stock Exchange in the old days, it was this single prestigious exchange that lasted for over 150 years without any substantive change. But now electronic trading is coming in. And everything is being shaken up. So, uh, so the um, New York Stock Exchange merged with Archipelago in 2005. Uh, and then they did another merger. Uh, let's say this New York Stock Exchange with, uh, with uh, Euronext, which is another exchange in Europe, in 2006. Uh, and right now they're going through a merger, another merger uh, process, apparently with the uh, Deutsche, Deutsche Börse, and that's 2011. It's not finalized yet, uh, and now NASDAQ is getting in. <laughs> NASDAQ is making an offer for the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, and so is another exchange called the Intercontinental Exchange. Uh, 
but the little guys are buying up the old-time big guys. So it, it's uh, Laura Cha was saying in her lecture that she was struck that we, we used to think of stock exchanges as like <coughs> utilities. Each country has its own stock exchange. It's the pride of each country. But now it's not happening anymore. And this reflects a bigger and broader trend that economies are becoming more and more integrated across the world. So the idea that there will be a stock exchange for each country uh, is, uh, is becoming dated. So the, the New York Stock Exchange may soon be a German company, <laughs> uh, but that's, uh, that's what happens in, the, um, in modern times. Uh, so uh, now I'm uh, I wanted to talk about some problems with high frequency trading as things get so electronic. Uh, let me give you one example. In 1987, this was the early days of uh, electronic trading. But uh, still, it had advanced pretty far. On October 19th of 1987, the stock markets in the United States fell, uh, according to the S&P uh, 500, over 20 percent in one day. Uh, the government did a study. Uh, President uh, Reagan ordered a study. Uh, and put it in charge of Nicholas Brady. And so the so-called Brady Commission did a report on why the stock market, that was the biggest single stock market drop in U.S. history. And uh, the Brady Commission did a report on that stock market drop and concluded that program trading, computer trading, had played a big role in the drop. Uh, there had been a development of programs that were called portfolio insurance sell strategies. Uh, they called it portfolio insurance, but it wasn't really insurance. It was an automatic sell strategy. It's like a stop loss order, but a more sophisticated one that could be executed in continuous time uh, by a program. And that led to uh, uh, an instability in the market that was. Uh, not anticipated and uh, shocked the world. Uh, so the uh, Brady Commission made a number of recommendations. Notably, the uh, Commission uh, recommended that uh, the exchanges impose trading halts that would uh, prevent, uh, prevent stocks from dropping, the whole market from crashing. Uh, so uh, the New York Stock Exchange and other exchanges, after the Brady Commission report, instituted what are called circuit breakers. Uh, and these are uh, automatic market halts that stop the market when prices are falling to help prevent another 1987-type uh, stock market crash. Uh, so. Uh, now, but the system is getting complicated. Uh, the, in, even before this, the United States government had created, had passed a set of rules in response to complaints uh, about 
people, about people not being given the best price. So here's the problem. We have multiple exchanges. Uh, New York Stock Exchange is one of many. Uh, and if you call a stock broker, the stock broker doesn't has discretion over where, which exchange the broker will use to fill your order. And so the broker might choose an exchange that doesn't give you the best price. The uh, broker can, in effect, rip you off as a broker. In fact, there's a practice called uh, payment for order flow. So uh, the, uh, a stockbroker who's receiving orders from retail clients may find that there is a dealer that's willing to pay for order flow. Put, don't put my, your, when a customer asks to buy the stock, don't put it through the New York Stock Exchange. Give it to me, and I'll give you, the broker, a fee for, for directing the order my way. Uh, and that may not serve the client well, <laughs> because the client then might end up paying a higher price. So there were a lot of complaints about this. And it's, uh, it's a difficult problem, because it's hard to monitor everything that people do. And there might be justifications for payment for order flow. But uh, there have been efforts to try to make it a fairer system. And in 1975, the US Congress set up something called the National Market System. Uh, and uh, oops, I think. Uh, um, So uh, NMS is the National Market System, and the uh, ITS is the Intermarket Trading System. What the government in the United States did is it said that brokers have to get the best price, uh, or it's called best bid, best offer, best bid uh, for their clients. Uh, and they have a responsibility uh, for their clients to take the market with the best uh, price. Um, so, um, in conjunction with this, the exchanges built, built something called the, the Consolidated Quotation System that allows brokers to see prices on various exchanges and direct the order of the client to the exchange that's showing the best price. Um, so that is a system that was started in the United States in 1975, and brokers still have an obligation to get the best price for their customers, regardless of exchange. But the obligation is hard for the government to monitor, and, rep uh, and uh, uh, it gets complicated. For example, if you're confronting this system, and your broker wants 500 shares, well, I've got, I can't fill them all at the same price, right? Uh, well, actually, I could here. <laughs> uh, if, the, if the broker wanted uh, 10,000 shares, they'd be all different prices, because I have d all these different customers, right, with, uh, asking different amounts. So, you know, what do you want us to do, SEC? And so the SEC uh, recently clarified this, just, I think it was in 2006. Well, we only mean that the 
you have to hit this, uh, the best one. There's one up here, 2400 for 2524. How you fill the others, you know, we can't get into that. So it's not a complete protection for customers, but there still is this obligation for brokers to use uh, the national market system to get the best price. Uh, but the system is complicated and confusing <laughs> because there's so many computers involved, there's so many different exchanges, and there's so many rules. Uh, it's hard for people to keep up with it. Uh, um, so uh, I had on, on the reading list, I had a report uh, that I um, uh, uh, that I well, I didn't. I found the report. It's, it was very much in the news a while back. This is a report on May 6, 2010. Do you remember what happened then? That was uh, not that long ago. The uh, stock market, as of around 2.30 in the afternoon in the United States, had fallen 4%. And then, within a matter of minutes, it dropped another 6% and then <laughs> rebounded quickly. Some individual stocks dropped practically to nothing, and you could buy you know, a $30 stock for 30 cents or something like that, and then they rebounded. So what happened? Uh, why, did the, uh, why, why did we have this, this very brief crash uh, in the stock markets? It wasn't like 1987 where the market went down and stayed down. If you look at closing prices, nothing much happened. It was this brief uh, glitch, which probably cost some people huge amounts of money, because if you were trading right at that moment, you'd have a problem. So I have as an optional reading on the reading list uh, a study that was made of May 6, 2010, uh, by the SEC and the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, trying to understand what happened then. Uh, and the study does focus on high-frequency trading. There were a lot of computers <laughs> trading automatically at that moment in time. So what apparently happened on May 6 is the market was already in a stressed mode before 2.30 p.m. Uh, the VIX index had shot up. There, there was some bad news. The market was down 4%. There was some bad news. Uh, so that meant that some traders were wondering what's going on, and they, they, maybe they decided to, to, to drop out for a while and just be cautious. And so the, but the, the computers were still trading. And then something happened. The computers started trading back and forth in milliseconds. <coughs> and it, I, don't, I don't know what the programs were supposed to do, or what they, maybe nobody knows the whole picture. But the volume of trade just went to an astronomical level. And it scared people off. Uh, and so there were a lot of trading pauses that were put. Uh, exchanges have rules about that, and individual dealers will say, I'm dropping out. I see all this volume, I, I'm not in here anymore. So it, it remains that the trading that was left was, was substantially computer trading, and uh, the market became very illiquid. Uh, and so this study has recommended fixes for this, uh, but it doesn't recommend ending high-frequency trading. And a lot of people would recommend doing that. There, there's a popular anger, especially since this May 6, 2010 
crisis occurred during the period of financial crisis, and people kind of imagine that the two are linked. I think they're kind of independent. I think the May 6, 2010 phenomenon was due to uh, some kind of uh, anomalies or infamiliarity with high-frequency trading. It's a glitch and not, uh, and not a major fault. But it, it led to a lot of anger about high-frequency trading. But uh, I've talked to some people at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange and others who uh, think that the public anxiety over high-frequency trading is misplaced. It's kind of inevitable. The future is computers, right? They're replacing people all over. Not, not in the judgment thing. You know, someone was saying at the CME meeting where I was that the basic business that we're doing is still the same as it was 100 years ago. But now we have laptops, right? It's just like when you write a term paper. It's basically the same thing that somebody would have done with a feather pen <laughs> and a piece of paper 200 years ago, right? It's basically the same. But we live in a computer age now, and we don't want to go back. And so, uh, high-frequency trading means that uh, we have to be a little careful. Things can happen with lightning speed, but we'll learn. And we'll, and, uh, we'll you know, there hasn't been another May 6, 2010 since. It, it was just an anomaly because people were unfamiliar with that kind of event. Um, and so, uh, I think it, it, will be, it will be all right. Uh, and one thing that it does, however, is it's changing the geography. It used to be that in the 18th century, a stockbroker had to live in London or Paris or New York in order to be close to the trading, right? Because they didn't have any way to make phone calls. When they invented the telephone, people said, fine, I don't have to live in New York anymore. I can live in anywhere and I can just send my call by telephone. But now high-frequency trading is bringing it back, uh, that people have to live close to the exchange, uh, because the trading goes so fast that your, your electronic signal, if you try to set up a high-frequency trading uh, operation in St. Louis, and you're operating by wire to New York, the time it takes for electricity to get from St. Louis to New York is too big, <laughs> and you will be behind on the trade. So you want to get as close as physically possible to the exchange, to the computer. You, you don't <laughs> See, the, the, the regional exchanges, there, there, there used to be exchanges in every US, big US city, and they were there because of social reasons, that people in Chicago wanted to talk to a broker in Chicago. They wanted to be able to go to his office and see him. So there were social reasons for connection. But now we're coming up with a new electronic reason. And because of um, basic theoretical physics, you can't move anything faster than the speed of light. This is going to be with us now that we have microsecond micro, uh, uh, trading. Uh, so, uh, Um, I wanted to talk a little bit now, and I think maybe this will be the last topic, about um, how you think about trading as a dealer who is confronted with uh, this kind of book. As a dealer, uh, you can put orders on this book and enter them and leave them there. Uh, that's basically what you do. 
So uh, these, you see various dealers, and their names are shown. Uh, and um, for example, uh, well, I don't know who who these people are, but uh, each dealer is going to be posting a bid and an ask, right? Uh, and a quantity for for these. And it's going to be you, you once if you do this, if you're sitting at your NASDAQ screen and you're a dealer, you can enter your own number on either of these, uh, either the bid or the ask, or both of them. So you have your own bid ask spread, okay? Uh, it's the same thing as an antique dealer, okay? An antique dealer has an idea, maybe it's not posted, of how much uh, he or she will pay for a chest of drawers from a Yale student at the end of the semester and how much he will charge to sell that. And the difference between the ask and the bid is called the, uh, uh, the spread, the, or the bid-ask spread. And so I wanted to just think a little bit about the theory of this. And uh, uh, how do you decide of, uh, of the bid-ask spread of what to do? And, and why is it what it is? The spreads are obviously very tight here because they're off only by one cent between the, on the inside spread. Uh, well, it doesn't correspond to one person. Maybe some of these are market or customer orders and aren't dealers. But think of placing an order as a dealer and leaving it on the screen so that anybody can, can come and, uh, and, and, and uh, the, the, the risk that you face is that you will be picked off uh, by people with superior information. And let me put it uh, in the context of an of a, uh, antique dealer. One thing that antique dealers don't like is when professional antique dealers come shopping <laughs> in their store. All right? So what do they do? You know, if you're a good antique dealer, you go to all the antique stores and you try to disguise yourself because they, they don't want you if you're a dealer. What do you do? You look through all their stuff and you find anything that's mispriced. You know, you, there'll be some chest of drawers that you recognize as an 18th century, you know, by a famous uh, 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 furniture maker. So you buy that at the, guy's, at the guy's price. You pick him off, right? So he doesn't want to be picked off uh, because somebody will come by who knows more, will, will pick off all the good stuff and buy it and leave you with the junk. So how do you prevent that? Well, you might think that you could prevent it by just being smarter, but you, you can try. <laughs> try to be as smart as you want and read up about all the antiques, but it's impossible. You cannot be the smartest guy out there. Impossible. There's just too many antiques and there's too much inside information. So that means you have to set your bid-ask spread wide enough that you can be picked off and still make a profit. All right, you know you're going to get picked off. And it's the same for, for stocks. If you're going to put a, a bid-ass spread up on the screen for, for some stock, you're just a sitting duck because there'll be some news story that's either good or bad. And if it's either way, somebody else is going to hear of it first. And <clears throat> when you get a hit on your order, it's going to be deadly because it'll be at the wrong time for you. So that's the theory that you have to you have to make the um, order uh, uh, 
the, the bid ask spread wide enough. Now, I wanted to then just give you a little bit of math. I shouldn't end the lecture on mathematics, but that's what I'm doing here uh, this time. Uh, and I wanted to just talk about the frustrating life as a dealer. I was telling you about frustrations in life as an investment banker. Uh, there are different frustrations in life as a dealer. Uh, and I'll tell you what the, the difference is. It's, life as a dealer is very different than life as an employee of something. You are a dealer, and, and you have whatever money you make. And the problem is you can get ruined. And th this is a classic problem. In other words, you can be working as a dealer for 20 years, and you see your, your portfolio growing because you're, you're making a lot of money selling. But you know, all it takes is a few bad moves, and you can be wiped out. You know, 20 years of work, and you're, you, you are ruined. So I wanted to just think about that, and this is my last bit of mathematics. There's a ga mathematics of gambler's ruin, and it's also a mathematics of, of dealer's ruin. And so here's the theory. If I start out um, with S dollars, S is my initial amount of money as a dealer, okay? And let's say I, I take a series of bets uh, which have a probability P is the probability of, of a win. Okay. What is the um, um, probability of eventual ruin? Oh, and if I make one dollar on each uh, one dollar on each win, and I lose a dollar on each minus one on each loss. I'm doing a sequence of bets on each loss. All right. What is the probability that I will eventually be ruined? Okay. Um, that probability, and I'm not going to derive this, but it's simple to derive actually. One minus p over p. To the s power, if p is greater than a half. Um, uh, so, um, if my probability of winning is a half, the, the probability of my being ruined eventually is one. Uh, and uh, if my probability of winning is less than a half, my probability of being ruined eventually is uh, also one. I have to somehow raise the probability of winning on each particular sale above a half. Uh, but even if I do that, if I make it, say, 0.6, uh, if I make probability 60% on one bet, then 1 minus 0.6 is 0.4 over 0.6. Uh, then uh, my probability of eventual ruin with starting out with $1 is 4.6, if I did that right, goes uh, down with the number of dollars I start, but it never goes to zero. So the, the theory of a dealer is that a dealer has to be thinking about being ripped off 
I've got to set my bid-ask spread high enough that the probability of winning on each of these little trades that I make is sufficiently above a half that my eventual ruin probability is satisfactorily low for me. Uh, but it's never going to be zero. This is the irony of, uh, of, uh, of being a dealer. You, 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 don't, you don't sleep well at night because you never know that it won't eventually unwind. Uh, and it's a competitive business because you can't just set your bid-ask spread arbitrarily high because then you'll lose all the business to other people. So you've got to kind of fix the bid-ask spread enough that you get business, but, that the, it, but you don't want to fix it too narrowly so that this probability be, falls too close to a half because then you're, you're courting the risk of disaster and eventually having all of your life's work being wiped out. Uh, so that was kind of a quick description of the. Uh, uh, I'm saying different personalities go into different parts of finance. You have to be kind of a game player, uh, someone who is not bothered by the possibility of eventual ruin, in order to go into uh, becoming a uh, a dealer. Very different from other aspects of uh, financial life. All right, I'll see you uh, soon. With uh, we're getting close to the end of the semester. <laughs> Some wrap-up lectures coming. <laughs>